We are studying the uh, letter of James to all the churches around uh, the world as he knew it. I'll read the first ten verses to you. James chapter 4, starting from verse 1. James says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and make war. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend to the of the world becomes an enemy of God? Or do you think Scripture says without reason that, uh, the footnote's the better one, God jealously longs for the spirit that he made to live in us. But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, help us to understand your word. We've already prayed for it, but we pray for it again. But because without your help, this is a closed book to us, Lord. Please then open our hearts and our minds and show us yourself so that we may be those who love you more. In Christ's name. Amen. I want my toy car. He lies on the floor of Tesco's, sort of helpless in apoplectic rage. And the other shoppers give you sort of meaningful glances, or they, or they um, quickly choose another aisle that they've just remembered uh, they wanted something from. And the small toddler goes sort of red and then purple with anger. I've seen it. You don't understand me. You've never understood me. I wish you weren't my parents. The door slams. The music starts playing loudly in the bedroom. And two parents sit down wondering how their lovely little girl could have become such a teenage monster. I'm expecting to see it. From our earliest years, human beings demonstrate the enormous power exerted on their personalities by desire. Don't they? The rages of small children stem almost always from that sense of inability to fulfill their desires. Or the, the classic teenage tantrum, you know, stems from the competing desires in a, in a personality, on the one hand for independence from their parents, 
but on the other hand, needing to still to have that secure parental relationship. And that conflict of desires just wells up in rage that they cannot control. And although time resolves that particular struggle, I'm very glad to say, all of human life is lived in the context of competing desires. We are desire factories, we human beings. On it goes throughout life. The young single person longs for a relationship with the opposite sex. The young couple longs for a child. The older couple longs for a better relationship with their children or a better relationship with each other. We all of us long for honor and respect, for a fulfilling job and rest from our job, for, for peace and tranquility and adventure, for secure relationships and exciting relationships. And those desires shape us. We are what we desire. And from that very early age, too, we learn the destructiveness of our desires, especially our thwarted ones. Small children smash toys in uncontrollable rage. Teenagers say hurtful things that, that take years to be forgotten. An unloved wife can smother her children with such stifling affection that they can only break free by total rebellion. An insecure man can become a tyrant at work, and so on. Actually, all interpersonal conflicts stem in one way or another from intrapersonal conflicts, conflicts within ourselves. It's a basic rule of human nature. James knew that. Notice what he says. What causes fights and quarrels among you he says, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Very interesting. James is actually not writing this letter to a specific church that was in trouble. He tells us at the beginning of the letter he was writing to all church, he, churches. He saw it as a general problem of his day, these quarrels. And it's still the same today. I'd love to be able to say that churches generally are free from fights and quarrels, but it's not so. Churches are full of ordinary, flawed people, just as the rest of the world is. There is a difference. The difference is that Christians have God's Holy Spirit to help them to win battles that otherwise they would be incapable of winning. And Christians have God's Word as well to help them to understand themselves and this world and to win those battles. How are we to win those battles then with our desires that make war within us? I think we have three options broadly. The first option is to satisfy those desires. I said, didn't I? It's thwarted desire which wreaks the most havoc in our personalities. So uh, perhaps the answer to living at peace with ourselves is to satisfy all of our desires. It's actually the dominant idea which, in the society which surrounds us today. One of the most prominent advocates of, uh, 
of this theory which says our personalities will finally be at peace if all our desires are satisfied is a man called Abraham Maslow. He suggested that we actually have a, a sort of hierarchy of needs ranging from our most basic needs for food and security onto higher order needs, such as the need for self-esteem. And he suggested that all you have to do to make someone whole is to satisfy those needs one after another until finally, as he, as he put it, they are self-actualized people. They love funny words, these um, psychiatrists. Of course, God's method of making us whole is partly to satisfy us, isn't it? And read the Psalms and you will find again and again expressions of deep satisfaction and fulfillment. But the problem, I think, with Maslow and all, all people who, who uh, uh, pursue that understanding today of how people become whole is that they assume that all of our desires are legitimate. For instance, uh, when relationships break down today, it's often justified because one or other partner no longer wants to be in that relationship. That is assumed, therefore, to be something that justifies it. But in the wider society, we find that actually that uh, unfettered pursuit, uh, pursuit of our desires is wreaking havoc. In the end, we are profoundly enslaved if we just set about satisfying all our desires. A second solution, though, is very uh, uh, popular today. It's restraining our desires. You know, I'm convinced that's one of the reasons why Eastern mysticism is so popular today, because uh, uh, through meditation techniques and teaching about inner harmony, we, we can uh, start to, to escape being ruled by our desires. Of course, Christianity has been advocating such restraint for a long time, but uh, many people today are, are disillusioned with Christianity, seeking that restraint in some other form. And up to a point, I think, Christians can applaud anything which helps people to get control over their desires. But I have to say that in the end, if we just seek to restrain our desires, we will find ourselves battling with the very wellsprings of who we are. At our very core, we are creatures of desire. It's not surprising that very few practitioners of Eastern religions even claim to have achieved inner peace Amongst the Buddhist friends that I've had, I, there, there's been a much stronger sense that they were searching after something than that they really felt they had found something. Now, there is actually another way of controlling these desires that make war within us, preventing them from damaging us. In fact, I think it's the most important solution that Christianity offers. It's redirecting our desires. See, the uncritical satisfaction of our desires damages us. Simply trying to restrain our desires is a project that will generally fail. But redirecting our desires so that they function as they were intended to function, that can lead to the most glorious transformation 
of who we are. And that's what James is talking about in this passage. He is not against desire. He is against badly directed desire. He's going to describe some symptoms of that. Then he's going to get to the real diagnosis of the problem. And then he's going to offer us a cure. First of all, then, let's look at some symptoms. And in the first uh, four verses, three verses, really, of the passage, you can look at it on the overhead if you fancy. Verse 2, for instance, makes it very plain. You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight or make war. James is using extremely strong language, isn't he? He's talking about killing and quarreling and making war. You know, not quite the activities that you expect to be going over, on over a cup of coffee at the end of the service. Isn't he a bit melodramatic? Well, no more than Jesus, who said that all hatred in principle was the same as murder. No more than John, who said in his first letter that failure to love one another was to be like Cain, the first murderer, the Bible is quite clear, is that if you do not uh, love one another, then we are ranked with murderers. Hatred is in principle murder. Where does that hatred come from? It comes, says James, because we wanted something and didn't get it. Remember, he's talking to Christians here. He's describing what happens among Christians. He's not talking about the general activities of the world. He's describing something he's seen in church life. Quite rightly, for, for the, the church for Christians is one of the most important things in their life. But that, in turn, so often means that the degree of emotional engagement that Christians invest in their church life Leads, leads, them, leads them to all sorts of extreme emotional reactions. And those emotional reactions can so easily be directed, be directed against the person whom they perceive is thwarting them. We kill, we quarrel, we make war, if not in fact, in our hearts. That's the first symptom then, interpersonal strife. The second symptom of uh, this disease that James is describing is prayerlessness. Do you see at the end of verse 2? You do not have because you do not ask God. People who are quarrelsome in the church are rarely found on their knees. They've generally lost any real confidence that God will provide for them. If they're going to get what they want, they've learned they have to take it themselves. If they are found praying, there's there's no sense of a real deep communion between themselves and God. There's no time spent seeking to listen to God and to let him guide their prayers. There's no open-hearted seeking after God for his will in their lives. They're, in their prayers, they treat God like a vending machine. They choose the product, they insert the coinage, they press the button, and God had better come up with the goods. That's what he says, doesn't it? When you ask, verse 3, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. He's painting a pretty clear picture, isn't he? 
Here's a group of Christians who are bent on squabbling amongst themselves, who've given up seriously expecting anything from God, who are bent on achieving what they want for themselves, and when they do patronize God with their prayers, it's actually just to fulfill their whim of the moment. No wonder he says, no, I'm not a vending machine. I will not answer you. There are the symptoms then of hearts that have gone wrong, desires which are out of control. James has seen enough of life to know that you find people like that in most churches. Satisfying their desires will not help those people. It will actually damage us even more. Simply seeking to suppress the symptoms that are going on will not be successful. It will be like trying to keep a football under the water. We do it for a little while, but sooner or later it just pops up again. Have you found that? Have you found that in your own life and in your own heart? You know, perhaps you, you struggle with anger towards others. You find that no matter how hard you try, it just explodes from time to time. Or if you do feel like you've got it under control, you discover it's just been internalized and it's led you down into depression. Or perhaps you struggle with, with feelings of lust. Or feelings of being unloved. Perhaps you struggle with low self-esteem and you find that it makes you, makes you manipulate relationships. Perhaps you struggle with insecurity and find panic welling up within yourself. Well, we all struggle with, with unruly desires like that, and neither satisfying them nor suppressing them helps. If we try to satisfy them, we find that they are like voracious wolves and want more and more and more. If we try to suppress them, we fail. But James says, actually, we need to go deeper into our hearts than just observing those things. We need to seek a profound diagnosis of our hearts for us to really be changed. And that diagnosis he begins to make in verse 4. See, up to this point, he has been talking about relatively specific things, but now he is talking about the fundamental focus of our hearts. He says to try to love God at the same time as you're loving and investing your love in things in this world is like trying to love your wife and keep a mistress. Whatever double think you may indulge in, it's adultery, he says. This is the problem. Our focus is this world. The most important things in our lives are things that are only associated with the here and now. And we think that we must achieve those things ourselves. That's why we fight and scheme and quarrel, he says. That's why we forget to pray. That's why if we do pray, we only ask in terms of trying to seek uh, God for achieving our goals now. 
Because we're not really focused on God. We're not really loving God. And to be like that in our hearts is as damaging to our relationship with God as an affair is damaging to a marriage, she says. Now, we mustn't get James wrong that we can have no interest in this world, no appreciation of it. But he is saying that the focus of our affection must be God. If we focus our attention on God, then we will find ourselves actually able to enjoy the world fully and joyfully as as his creation. But if we only focus on this world, then we will be be worshipping the creation rather than the creator, worshipping the image rather than the reality, worshipping something which is here today and gone tomorrow, rather than worshipping someone who is the same yesterday, today and forever. That's what he's saying. We must be in no doubt, says James, that God is passionately concerned that we should worship him alone. I think that's the best translation of verse 5, as I said, the, the first alternative at the footnote of the NIV. God jealously longs for the spirit he made to dwell in us. The Old Testament is full of that. Not because God's some egomaniac. It's because God knows that's what we were created for. For his creatures to fail to worship him, for us to give our prior allegiance to to, uh, passing things, he says, is, is a terrible and eternal tragedy. That's what he's trying to say. It's a tragedy because one day this love affair that we are enjoying so much now will be cruelly severed in death. And it's a tragedy because on that day, we will not find ourselves sinking into the embrace of he who has loved us faithfully all our lives. We will find ourselves sinking in the abyss of the final consequences of our adulterous rejection of that love. Eternal, irreversible divorce from God. I want to spell out this to you very, very clearly so we don't miss what James is saying here. James is saying we will only really be whole and at peace if we love nothing more than God. I know it sounds scary. Does it mean that I can't have a home? Well, it means that we have to be able to say, I want you more than I want a home. Does it mean that uh, I can't have good health? It means we have to be able to say, I want you more than I want my good health. Does it mean I can't have a happy home life or a successful job or beautiful children or money or prestige or a good reputation? It means we have to be able to say to God, I want you more than any of these things because I want an eternal home more than a temporary one. I want eternal health more than my temporary temporal health. I want treasure in heaven. I want eternal, perfect relationships 
rather than relationships that just feel good for a moment. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be, didn't he? If we cannot say on our knees before God that we love him more than anything else, then at the center of our hearts is another God, and the true God is rejected. Of course, he won't automatically deprive us of those good things in his life. In fact, paradoxically, he seems to more likely to deprive us of those things if, if uh, we are determined to hang on to them. Because for our sakes, he must break that adulterous attachment that we have. But sometimes, even for people who love him more than anything else in the world, he does let them lose their homes lose their families, lose their health, lose even their lives. It does happen. If we love those things more than we love God, then on the day that we lose them, we will turn our backs on God forever, he says. We will reveal, as James put it here, that we were always an enemy of God. We always hated God. We were always adulterous. As we found again and again in James, it sounds impossible, doesn't it? You know, you say perhaps, I can recognize the symptoms going on in my heart. These are my symptoms. Perhaps you can say, I realize this diagnosis is right but I don't really love God more than anything else. I'm far too focused on this world and having things my way. But if James is right, this is a terminal disease, isn't it? Surely that our desires will always be focused on this world. How could we possibly redirect our desires to eternity? Well, the words at the beginning of verse 6 are absolutely vital for us and central to this passage. But he gives us more grace. James expects a supernatural transformation. It is freely given. It is grace. He does not satisfy our desires uncritically. He does not just help us to subdue our desires. But by his grace... He redirects our desires. He redirects us to heaven, redirects us to eternity, redirects us to himself. And only by his grace can God do that. But his grace, says James, comes to us as we do three things. As we accept the diagnosis and go for the cure. First of all, says James, we must humble ourselves. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, says James. In other words, humility is an essential prerequisite of God's grace. If we say to God this morning, I'm okay, I'll get myself to heaven, thank you very much, then he will be implacably opposed to us. If we say, what right have you got, God, to demand so much of me uh, and insist that I do not love this world for more, than, more than you, 
and he will oppose us. But if we say to him, I know I fail. I know I put other things before you again and again. I know I need you so desperately. I know I so rarely really ask for your help. Please, Lord, forgive me. Please, Lord, help me. Please, Lord, have mercy on me. If that is you, then you have God right alongside you right now. You are in touch with the source of help which far outweighs all of our failures. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Humble ourselves then, the first element of our cure. Second part of the medicine is simply to come to God. Look at verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands. Be in no doubt then, says James. When we love anything else more than God, it's because the devil is there. He's tricked us. He's deceived us. He's captured us. But, says James, the devil is a coward. The devil loves to convince us that he has some monstrous, tyrannous power over us to dominate us every minute of our lives. But, but he can only do that if we let him. Actually, if we turn around to him and say, push off, if we tell him that his feeble lies have not deceived us, if we tell him that we will not squander our lives on the shallow, deceptive pleasures of the moment that he has put in front of our eyes, if we tell him that we love God and we intend to love God for all eternity, then he'll be out of there, says James, quicker than a scalded cat. He goes. He'll flee. And then, says James, God is actually quite the opposite of that. God woos us, he says. You know, we can slap God in the face time and again, and he comes back seeking us. Now, I don't know whether you remember, in the Old Testament, uh, the prophet Hosea was instructed by God to, to marry an adulterous woman, and she soon deserted him for another man. But God said to Hosea that he had to go and get her back, to woo her back, because, he said, that's what I'm like. I woo back adulterous people for myself. I accept people who betray me. Come near to God, says James, and he will come near to you. And maybe you feel personally you are far from God. Maybe you would say that you once knew him, but now he feels a million miles away because of what you've done, because of how you've treated him. Maybe actually you know you've never really known him in your life. You're convinced that, that you never could either because of the way you behaved. Maybe you've sat here this morning and said, yes, my desires battle within me. Yes, I see how my desires are actually focused on the fact that I don't really love God as I should, and therefore they, they, they're at war with me. But I can't change that. I'm never going to be any different. I've made my bed, now I must lie in it. God is nowhere near from me. Oh, yes, he is. 
God is standing just a little way off from you. And he's saying, turn towards me. He's saying, take a step towards me. He's saying, put your arms out towards me. And I will come to you. You only need to take one step, says God. And I will be there. Like a husband who will not leave his wife. Come to God. And then a third element that James calls us to. He says, repent. Verse 8. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve more than wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. You know, there's a sort of superficial happiness that James has identified in church circles sometimes, which on the surface is all jolly, but underneath is all warring desires. And he says, no, actually there's a sense in which a deep sadness pervades those who come to God, who know their sin. And only when they have expressed that deep sadness does a still deeper joy well up from them, within them. That's what he's saying. To return to God is to mourn our failure, to weep over our sins, he says, and then to be lifted up. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up, he says. Those are the three elements. Humble yourself, he says. Don't be proud, self-satisfied. Come to God as a humble person, but come to him. And he will come to you and repent. Mourn over your sin. And as we do that, we discover a loving relationship with God, you see, which redirects all of those warring desires towards him, towards heaven, towards eternity. We don't need to be suspicious of our emotions any longer. We don't need to keep a, keep a great lid on them because they well up in the direction they were always meant to well up in, in love for God. Human beings are creatures of desire. There is no point in denying it. From our first cry to our last breath, we are guided by desires. But we were meant to be people who desire God. I have to ask you, do you want that? Or would you perhaps find another way of satisfying those desires and those longings that are within you? All you have to do is humbly come to God and ask his forgiveness. Turn and express your sorrow to God. And all of those turmoils of emotions that all of us know in our hearts will be directed like a fountain. Produce a glorious cascade of life in us. Humble yourself.
before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Let's pray. Lord, every single person who knows and loves you is a miracle. Is someone who has experienced their own inability to save themselves and yet has discovered that you give more grace. Please, Lord, we pray for every single one of us here. Help us to humble ourselves before you. Help us to come to you. Help us to repent of our sins. And so be bathed in the grace of your love. Turn us away from all blind alleys, we pray, Lord. Make us those who long for you more than anything else. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.